Welcome to the Blabbermalt Show with your hosts, Dave and Matthias, two guys that blabber incessantly about beer, brewing, and bullcrap. Stick around while they brew up another tasty episode. Yeah! Scream for me, Cleveland! Scream for me, Cleveland! Uh, that's just a little prelude for the music section coming up later. It's an Iron Maiden thing. If you know, you know. <laughs> so here we are, Blabbermalt. And you're going to notice that this is not Matthias. Uh, he is at an undisclosed location, enjoying some family time, uh, spring break with his family. Uh, so my friend here, Todd Donnelly, is going to help me hold down the fort today. Legendary brewer in the area, fellow <laughs> snob, fellow Iron Maiden fan. Yes. Fellow pharmacist, mm-hmm. fellow UT grad, too. Yes. Yeah, so we got a lot in common. Um, play the thing, Sean. It's time to mash in. Mash in. Yeah, so uh, how was your week? What did you do this weekend? What was going on for Easter? So this was the first weekend of decent weather, so I spent a lot of time kind of unwinterizing everything. Okay. And then, um, had a good time with family on Sunday. Nice. Had a nice... Uh, Nice meal, nice uh, visit. Yeah. So other than that, it was well, uh, well-earned relaxation. Yeah, that's great. Uh, we did similar. We were out ABC Friday night uh, with the wife. Uh, my uh, uh, nephew was in with his girlfriend and sister-in-law were out. Uh, we had a good time. We tried the, uh, the new Paloma at ABC. Um, my wife came up with the idea, hey, why don't you salt that rim for me? Cool. And uh, it was great. So I think they're going to offer that as a thing. They're going to put salt on the rim for the Palomas out there. Uh, and then, you know, had a good Easter, uh, went out to dinner with some friends, uh, brunch, and then uh, spent some time with the family um, over at uh, my brother's house. So Cool. Yeah, that's what we did. Uh, so before we get started, I want you to make sure you like and follow, subscribe, hit the notification bell on all the socials, hit the buttons, do the things, because uh, it really helps us out. Uh, last Tuesday, we were at Collision Bend for the uh, release of my collaboration brew uh, with them, the uh, Great and Grind Saison. We did a short little version of the podcast out there. It took us about three times to do it. So I told myself I'm not going to make fun of Sean anymore for any audio difficulties because we had some problems. <laughs> it's not as easy as it seems. So... Hey, if you're thinking about doing a podcast, why don't you hit up Audio Bay, and uh, they have all the equipment. They have all the lights and the mics and the headphones and the equipment, uh, and uh, do a podcast. You can concentrate on your content, and they'll take care of all the switching of the buttons and all that stuff. So, yeah, shout out to Audio Bay. All right, let's hit the Vorloft here. It's time for the Vorloft. So I already introduced Todd, um, and... uh, as I said, he's a fellow brewer and a brewer with some significant acumen in beer, cider, meads. Um, why don't you tell us, how did you get started into brewing? What was your uh, gateway into the hobby? So I came into this a little different route than most. Mm-hmm. Um, built a home kegerator, had a one-tap kegerator, wanted to have friends over, wanted to have beer. Okay. Uh, the problem was, you know, the first time you go to buy beer, you buy it in a half barrel. 
So it took me like six months to drink (laughs) through that first keg of Molson Golden. I have not had a drop since. (laughs) You just get so tired of stuff. So then I built a a little two-tap kegerator and started buying Sixtals from local places and then said, well, two is great. Wouldn't 10 be better? So then I built a 10-tap kegerator and I figured out I need to start home brewing to cost justify this hobby because buying commercial beer is expensive. Yeah, what, uh, forgive me. We need to pour a beer. Yes, we do. Uh, beer of the day. Um, I told you we're getting the Fatheads Green Grunge. Green, yeah, Green Grunge. It smells like green spirit. A Nirvana cool. themed beer. So I started home brewing in 2008. My wife and I had played around with it a little bit, maybe 10 years before. Didn't make a very good beer. Uh, Decided I was going to get serious, so I joined Snobs. I joined uh, Little Mountain Homebrewers Club, started listening to the Brewing Network, and just totally fell in love with the hobby. Yep. Probably like you know, you as a pharmacist, your, your background, your science training, your knowledge is just perfectly set up for homebrewing. The science, the microbiology, the, the chemistry, it's a blast, and you get to drink your mistakes. Yes. So It's not all bad. Started doing that, <laughs> and then once I got into, uh, you know, competitions then it just took off i everything i like to do i like to compete in like to see how i am against others and once you start winning you know competitions and doing well and getting good feedback right uh that was that so that's been the last you know 13 14 years now and now you're on the other end you're able to give new home brewers mm-hmm. that feedback that you got when you started out i imagine yeah judging is a lot of fun too yeah um, it's not an easy road uh, i'll say getting through the ranks and taking the exams and studying to, you know, to get where you want to be. Uh, it's a lot more than just drinking beer. Right. Uh, yeah. And it's fun to try to explain to people like how much work you have to do to train your skills and to, uh, to get the knowledge necessary to take those exams. But, yeah. you know, now we, we get to turn, you know, drinking beer into a hobby. Um, and then the hobby becomes something that you give back. It's right. a good, it's a good process. Yeah. Here Cheers. Cheers. Yeah. Well, that's good. Well, yeah. yeah. Matt does not make a bad beer. No. So, yeah, we talked a little bit about the BJCP program on the last episode. Um, and I was explaining it's not like an untapped rating where it's like, I like that beer. That's a five. Right. You know, you have to. It could be a beer that's great in its category and its lane. But um, if it's not your style, you still have to judge it according to right. the uh the set profile for that beer. Um, and then you, you are, a, uh, are you a national judge national, or national yeah. judge? That's a big deal. That's a big deal. Uh, so you start out with the online, mm-hmm. uh, program and then you sit for a proctored exam and then you get experience. Uh, yeah. So the, the basic process, again, you have a hundred question, 60 minute or it's a timed exam, and you've got to know your stuff to get through that initial four-way. You can't be looking up answers as you go. That allows you to sit for the tasting exam where it's six beers, 90 minutes, you do a score sheet, and they're coming fast and furious. Uh, and judging a beer, I don't know if you've covered this with your audience before, but it's a 50-point scale, and it's broken down into the aroma, the appearance, the mouthfeel, the, the flavor, and the overall impression. And each one of those has a certain number of points. And you're just basically using all of your sensory skills at once to assess what am I sensing here? You have no idea 
how that brewer made that beer, and you can't make those assumptions, and you're judging it against what is the archetype for that style. So Correct. it's supposed to taste like this. Let's compare the beer that you're tasting. If you do well enough on that exam, you get dropped into one of uh, a couple of different levels. You can become a, a recognized uh, judge or a certified judge. If you score above 80 on that exam, you can sit for the national exam, which is a 90-minute written exam. And you know the questions in advance. It's still one of the most stressful uh, exams I've ever taken, and I've taken a lot. Right. And Again, if you score well enough on that, 80 or higher, you get national. If your tasting exam and your written exam average is 90 or higher, uh, you can become a master. Yeah. And like less than 2% of all judges get to that level. So yeah. it's, it's, a, it's an interesting little ladder to work your way up. Yeah. So when you're, you know, people think, well, I'm studying for this beer exam. Oh, that's real rough. But actually, you have to know the different off flavors and you have to be able to detect them in fairly low levels. Isn't that correct? And we all have different palates mm -hmm. for, you know, some people they can sense a certain off flavor from across the room, whether it exists or not, mm, they, they can, right. they can taste it. Um, some people are completely blind and you can have a beer that's just rife with uh, diacetyl or oxidation and they might not pick it up, you know, to the same level that somebody else does. So, it's learning what you can do and then learning your blind spots. Yeah. Um, you know, and then going into a beer saying, I kind of have this as my um, skill set. What am I going to pick up in this, in this beer? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And then you also, you've been running the Son of Brazilla competition for quite a few years. So we started that competition in, I think, 2010. Okay. And it's called Son of Brazilla because at the time for Cleveland Beer Week, Brazilla was the big capstone event on Saturday night. Correct. So the first year, we ran the contest that morning, and then we were going to announce the awards on stage at Brazilla, which was the big beer festival at the end of it. And what we figured out was that's a lot of work to do in one day. Mm -hmm. But that's where the son of kind of came from. So that happened maybe the first year, second year, and that was Dave Clark's um, idea at the time. How do we bring snobs into beer week? And it worked out great we had to figure out how to decouple it just so we could do more things and not have it be smack dab in the middle of, you know, all the fun that you're having during beer week. Right. Um, but yeah, it's, it's evolved. It's grown. We started it in the second floor of the uh, North Olmstead Fatheads facility, mm -hmm. having to go up and down stairs and, and, you know, haul everything up was not a lot of fun, but we followed Matt Cole and the rest of the Fatheads group. The next few years, it was in their first production facility um, over by the airport and then we followed them, you know, to their new facility. And, and that group just provides an amazing amount of support, uh, world-class space for us to do it in. Yeah, and they used to let us do the, well, when they were still there, the Big Brew, the yep. big, big, big Brew, brew homebrew event, which is coming up, I think. Um, so the Son of Brazilla is a sanctioned BJCP event. What is the, what is the process for becoming a sanctioned event? Uh, so you have to apply. You have to let the BJCP know what you're doing, when it is, you know, what your basic um, estimated numbers are, uh, and if it fits on the calendar, you know they'll they'll you know put it out there and say, okay, this is now a BJCP sanctioned event, which means we have to follow certain rules. Um, but if it's a sanctioned event, that means the judges get points. Yes, and that's the incentive <laughs> for judges. Is you know there's a uh, passing of the test part, but then there's also 
you have to keep active in the hobby and you have to judge or you have to steward, you have to do something frequently enough to uh, achieve points and that helps you get to the next level too. Right. Um, so once it's sanctioned, we put out the call for judges and say, this is the date we're having it. And you know, this year it's going to be the weekend of November 11th. Um, and judges and volunteers make the event because yeah, can, without them, it doesn't know, happen. There's yeah. three of us that kind of organize it. It's Mike Untolchik, Greg Irving, and I, we have some other friends, you know, in, in snobs, Jim Jedwisiak, Jim Gress, who have helped us with sponsorships, but you know, there's a judge coordinator, the event coordinator, the data management and uh, seller mastering. Those are the, the kind of roles, but you know, you need people to show up to help steward, to help pull the beers from the seller, to help, um, you know, do the, the scoring, to help judge the beers. And it's, everyone's a volunteer and we're all doing it out of the love of the hobby and you get to drink beer. Yeah. So it's not right. a bad thing. Yeah. It's not a bad thing at all. Terrible way uh, to spend a weekend. <laughs> now, is it difficult, uh, to, get enough judges and, and stewards and that tends to be the rate limiting step for how okay. big your competition can be. Um, cause you're going to draw from, you know, here in Cleveland, we draw Cleveland, Akron, we bring judges in from Pittsburgh, some from Indianapolis, some from New York. I mean, there are folks who, who do a lot of traveling with judging beer, but you know, again, people have other lives, other schedules, and it's tough to, to say, we're going to do 400 entries. And we know that we need to have, you know, say 60 judges or 70 judges to do that many. Um, and then you only get half or two thirds of that, you know, who sign up or show up. And now yeah. you've got to start figuring out, do we run multiple days? How much do we yeah. want to work our judges to, to get know, these I events I know you were going to steward, but you're judging now. Get that happens there. a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or, hey, you know what? You're going to do another flight. And then, yeah. you know, we're going to do this again tomorrow and you're going to do another flight then too. Yeah. So they run the gamut. Yeah. Do you have, uh, I mean, it's got to be a balancing act. Okay, we want... How many participants? Um, you open the sign up if you don't get enough, or you get too many, and you have to close it down early. Um, how is that balancing act? Is that difficult? When we first, I would say the first seven or eight years of the event, um, we would sell out or you know fill up within two or three days. Yeah. Uh, one of the nice things about our contest is our sister club in Akron, which is uh, Saz. They also have a competition, Wizard of Saz. And we created a, a friendly competition between the two clubs. And we have a, yeah. a big trophy, and whichever club scores the most points gets to keep the trophy for the year, and it's bragging rights. Who has it right now? I forget. I'm pretty sure they do. Yeah. But we won't talk about that. Okay. Uh, so those first <laughs> couple of years, it was a mad dash to get as many of your, you know, your, your club members to enter their beers right. so that you had a fighting chance to get it. And then we started getting you know, people from out of state, we're getting entries from all over the country. Uh, but we figured out that, yeah, we could post and probably fill 600, you know, or, or more. But honestly, we, we, we can't get the manpower to do much more than 400. So we've kind of yeah. settled on the three to 350 range. Yeah. It's manageable. You can do it in two sessions on a Saturday and everybody's happy. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, what does the Wizard of Saz get? Are they about the same? About the same size competition? Roughly, yeah. yeah. In okay. the you know, 250 to 350 is kind of the sweet spot for local okay. comps. Yeah, well, I know you bring in a lot of points for the snobs with <laughs> your excellent I try. ciders and meads. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about that. The, sure. This, um, you know, you're brewing beer, um, getting some good feedback, competitions are going good. How did you get into, I mean, what was it first, ciders or meads? And So I was doing just beer from 2008 to 2013. Okay. And, 
you know, having a blast, doing, you know, quite well, enjoyed certain styles more than others, uh, follows kind of like what I like to brew and drink. Uh, in 2013, though, I started grad school. Okay. Yeah. And I was doing a double master's program, and I did not have eight hours on a weekend uh, for a brew day. Yeah. But you can do cider or you can do mead, you know, the, the prep time you can basically do at halftime of a football game. So it was a great way for me to continue with the hobby with my time constraints. And, you know, I love cider and, you know, I love mead. So for me, it was take that first step in and it was cider because, again, cider is a little easier. Mead took a little bit of, uh, of time and practice. Okay. And fortunately, there are a lot of really good, you know, uh, mead makers in the area. Carl McMillan from Saz and I, you know, had friendly competition for the next, you know, six, seven years until he eventually went pro. But, you know, iron sharpens iron. So, you know, going up against Carl made me better. And I think I pushed him, you know, to, to enter better entries too. And we had a blast. Yeah. And then, you know, started sending away things to the national competition. So right. national homebrewers competition, the Mazer Cup, which is the Super Bowl of, of Mead. Yeah. And that kind of gave me that next point, you know, this is what I want to do. These are the people that I want to compete against, and I want to see how how I do. How far at, you at can that, push it. At that upper level. Yeah. And that's kept me interested in the hobby. Okay. So, yeah. Because, um, you know, you make a lot of liquid. You can't drink it all yourself. Yeah. You, you can only it. share so much with friends, and eventually <laughs> you need that outlet. So for me it was, okay, I'll send this off to be evaluated and compete in other places. Yeah. Are you doing uh, five-gallon batches or uh so i've smaller? got a 10 gallon brew house so when i do beer it's 10 gallons yeah um and i've got a 14 gallon from uh, conical fermenters so i tend to do 10 gallon batches yeah and that gives you two kegs worth and you, you know the goal is if you wanted to have a really good three-year-old mead today you needed to make it three years ago yeah so i figured out let's start mass producing so i'm buying in bulk i'm buying 60 gallon or um, 60 pound pails of honey making a lot of mead and bulk aging it. Okay. So, you know, what you're going to have here tonight is stuff that I basically took right out of the kegs. Okay. When I bottle for competition, I will, you know, taste what's in the keg, and then I'll start doctoring it up literally for that competition. Okay. So I don't modify what's in the keg. I'm just letting it naturally mature. The flavors will change over time. So if you set something today, either your acid or your tannin, um, that might not be what you wanted to have that taste like in a year. Okay. Um, so there's some strategy to how, how to run your cellar, but, um, you know, I've got a lot of kegs just taking up a lot of space, uh, ask my wife, <laughs> but, uh, you know, they're aging, they're getting better, they're maturing and, and it's, it's a process. never ending process. Yeah. yeah. Let me back you up, uh, mm -hmm. to the brew day. I mean, I know when we're, um, mashing with grain and you get your wort, it's kind of the perfect environment for yeast, mm -hmm. um, for cider and mead you kind of have to take care of it a little bit different. Is that, is that the case? I'm naive when it comes to cider. And oh, meat, so no problem. So cider is a lot easier. It has a lot of obviously fruit in it, which is a fairly easy substrate for yeast to metabolize. Okay. You can put a touch of yeast nutrient in it, but for the most part, you pitch your yeast, it's going to work through the cider. It's going to ferment in a matter of days. Okay. It's very quick. Honey is a completely different animal. There is very little free amino nitrogen in uh, the must, basically the, the diluted honey. So you have to provide nutrients. Okay. So, uh, you know, a brew day for cider is, you know, you pour your cider into your fermenter, whatever else you're going to make, your fruit additions, anything else, and then you pitch your yeast and you walk away. Mead, it's 
you know, you dilute the honey, you put whatever you want in it. If you're making a fruit mead, if you're making a spice mead, uh, and then your journey is just beginning. So you okay. stagger nutrients. So typically it's at 48 hours, you add a certain amount of yeast energizer. So I tend, I use Fermate O, uh, you can use Fermate K, there's uh, DAP, there's other ingredients you can put in, but you need to feed it nitrogen. And then you do it again on day two and day three and then day seven. So what you're trying to do is feed the yeast what it needs in small enough bites so that the ferment doesn't go out of control. You don't throw off a bunch of fusels. You don't throw off a bunch of off flavors. The, the heat of the fermentation doesn't take over and provide its own you know, off flavors that you wouldn't want. It's similar to beer. You want to keep your ferment yeah. temperature under control. But you don't want to dump it all in at one time and let the yeast go crazy. You want to stagger those additions so that it's a nice, slow, easy, controllable ferment. Okay. Primarily, you're done, um, you know, three weeks, four weeks. Primary fermentation's over. Your yeast is starting to flocculate. Um, at that point, I'll usually cold crash, drop in um, sparkaloid, or you can use any kind of uh, fining agent, and then rack it off into a, a second vessel, usually a keg at okay. that point. Um, and you control... Fermentation temperatures? You can. Room temperature is fine. Okay. Uh, much like beer, anywhere from 62 to 72 is, is going to be your sweet spot. Okay. Um, different yeasts like to work at different temperatures, but for the most part, it's a lot more forgiving. You don't want it in your garage when it's 90 degrees outside. Yeah, for sure. You know, letting that yeast go crazy. You're going to get the fusel alcohols. Um, but for the longest time, that's why, you know, people thought making mead was so much harder and you needed to age your mead for so long because they were just pitching yeast into this inhospitable environment and the yeast struggled, you know, for six months to chew through all that sugar. And it kicked off all sorts of uh, nasty byproducts, weird flavors that you had to age out for a year or two. Okay. Yeah. Well, as the hobby and, you know, the commercialization of, of making mead became more popular, people started discovering that, hey, this is the way to do it. And there's been four or five guys that have really kind of spearheaded that and have created what the rest of us all copy now. But it's that, okay. you know, tailored, staggered nutrient addition process. And you can drink very good mead at six weeks instead of six months. Yeah. Now, it's better at six months, but um, you know what you have a lot sooner in the process, and you can turn your, your batches a lot quicker. Okay. So you're not hogging up a fermenter for six months. You're using a fermenter for a month. Yeah. Do you... Put any in wood, or is that a thing that... Um, mead loves oak. Okay. So I do have a five-gallon oak barrel. It's an old whiskey barrel that I recharge from time to time. But um, oak staves, oak spirals, oak chips, oak cubes, they all work. Um, a little bit gives a little bit of that vanillin flavor, a little bit of um, mouthfeel from the tannin that you're mm -hmm. introducing. That's really what you're looking for is structure. It's like a wine. You're trying to give it a little more complexity, so it's not just sweet and, right. you know, sitting on your tongue. Yeah. So the acid, the tannin balance is the difference between uh, a lackluster mead and, uh, you know, a, a joy in a glass. Yeah. Well, man, I, I'm going to grab this glass and I'm so hoping we need maybe to, it will fill it up for me. Awesome. <laughs> so I brought a couple things tonight. We're going to do um, tastes of three different ciders. I've got a sizer. And then two meads. Okay. So a sizer is a mead made with apple juice instead of water. Mm -hmm. So it, it kind of, you know, branches the two together. 
So the first one we're going to do, um, we're going to go a little out of order. I've got a New England cider. Okay. Which this one's uh, 13% ABV. Ooh. And maybe don't fill it up then. No, we're just going to do taste. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have a good time. Uh, so I like doing New England ciders. They're delicious to drink in the fall. The original concept here is that you are taking your cider and you're adding in any one of a number of different dark sugars. So I used uh, turbinado, uh, demimara, some amber uh, Belgian candy sugar. Oh, wow. Get the, uh, you know, the gravity up so you're getting that alcohol and then little oak aging. And then I aged it on um, some roasted raisins Ooh. to give it a little bit of that Venice quality on the back end. Cheers. Cheers. So you'll notice definitely it's got more body. Um, the alcohol is there, but it's not overly warm. This one's off dry, semi-sweet. Yeah, that's got a nice mouthfeel. Get those raisins. Mm -hmm. Yep, and it finishes. It doesn't cloy. It's not hot Again, at all. Again, 13%. Yeah. It's not hot. It hits the tongue. You get all the impression. You can taste the sugar, um, but it's not sweet. Yeah. And again, this one's great. Uh, nice, cool fall night or yeah. you know, winter night with your, your feet up and uh, you got a fire going. Yeah, that's dangerous because it is not, mm -mm. it does not taste like 13%. No, it'll sneak up on you. So, oh, yeah. most people, Thank when they you. think cider, they think, you know, Angry Orchard. Right. Or they right. think it's, a, you know, an apple wine cooler. Mm -hmm. And that's what, you know, the commercial guys sell. So, that's what they make. And, you know, you, you go to a, a cider competition and, man, there's all sorts of interesting things. Just in the traditional ciders, you've got New World, which is basically apples from, you know, the Americas. You've got a French cider. You've got an English cider. You can do a Spanish cider. And, again, it's where did the apples come from? Well, we can't really grow uh, the apple trees here that they have in England. Uh, yeah. You know, they're much more tart, much more tannic, much more acidic. Same with France. So most of the ciders we make are either uh, fruit additions or their spice additions, and I've got one of each. I've got a raspberry and a ginger that we can try next. Okay. Um, and then it's whatever your you know imagination can take. So I've done um, back sweetened with maple syrup, you know, and, and call it like a you know a maple dessert cider. Yeah. Um, people use herbs. They use you know different spices, combinations of all of the above. It's good. Yeah, that's wonderful. All right, so we'll move on to uh, the ginger next. Going to pick that one because it's going to clean the palate. Down the hatch. Yep. So have you ever thought of going pro? That's a great question. and The answer I, is yes. <laughs> I, but I think I can answer it in um, a couple of other ways. I don't want a hobby to be a job. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And, you know, for us as pharmacists, <clears throat> You know, we have a career that allows us to, you know, to make a good living. It would be tough to turn that down, you know, to start a struggling, you know, little small cider or meadery. And um, this might be my retirement job. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But for now, I really enjoy it just as a hobby. So this is um, ginger cider, 5%, mm -hmm. um, semi-sweet, just a touch of um, the spicy ginger and mostly uh, medium spicy ginger. Okay. So again, Thank the concept you. here is, you know, Hits the palate, cleanses it, um, gives you that little taste of ginger without being too much. Yeah, that smells wonderful. Mm. So this one's always on my, my kegerator. Mm -hmm. um, 
just love the, the flavor. It's a great yeah, one to have. Ginger really brightens it up. It's really bright. Yeah, that's good. And I don't care for ginger in beer. So I actually thought I didn't like ginger. Yeah. Um, turns out I really like it in cider and I really like it in meat. Okay. So it's just what what are your flavors playing off of yeah. in the rest of the glass? Yeah, it is a lighter body. Yeah, that's that's nice. And then most ciders, if you let it ferment regularly, it will ferment down to zero. Like there will be no residual sugar. It mm-hmm. loves to go dry. You can back sweeten as much as you want, or you can make something sweet on the front end just by overwhelming the yeast. And then it's, you halt uh, fermentation so it doesn't you can. It, through it, that. It's harder to do with cider because cider itself typically comes in at, you know, 1055, 1060. Mm-hmm. So the yeast is going to chew through those gravity points in, in no time flat. It's easier to stabilize it, back sweeten it with, um, you can use honey, you can use sugar, you can use agave, you can use whatever you want to what you like. Okay. So in this one, when I made it, um, I used three uh, cans of raspberry puree, which has a nice tart acidity of its own, but it was bone dry and I didn't really care for it. I back sweetened it a little bit and liked it. Oh yeah. So I back sweetened it a little bit more. And this is actually uh, a pretty popular version because for me, I don't usually make sweet ciders and this one's a little on the sweeter side, but I think the raspberry plays very well with that okay. dimension. So take a taste and let me know what you think. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. I do. I, I do a lot with like blackberries and raspberries and saisons, and sometimes the raspberry loses something when you take the sweetness away. Mm-hmm. But you gave it back with this. That was the yeah. uh, trial and error. Yeah, and I think it worked out. Yeah, this one's a good. One. I don't know that I'd have two pints of this after mowing the lawn on a hot <laughs> day. No, but. but it's certainly tasty to, to drink yeah. all the other times. So do you, can you back, do you back sweeten it after it's in the keg or is it still when you're back sweetening? So I will usually, um, let it finish fermentation, rack it off the yeast, mm-hmm. stabilize it with your potassium metabisulfate, your potassium sorbate. You just want to stun the yeast. You want them to stop actively fermenting or mm-hmm. replicating. Then when you add your back sweetening, you're not going to create you know, additional fermentation, which right. if you're bottling, you don't want to create a bottle bomb. No. Um, but, you know, in a keg, you can force carb it. That's the easy part. Mm-hmm. Um, but you just don't want the yeast to continue to chew through that sugar. Right. And if left on their own, they will do that yeah. over time. So you think you made a nice sweet cider. You come <laughs> back you know, two weeks later and it doesn't taste as sweet because yeah. it's not. Because it's, yeah. And you might have some shrapnel in your yeah. storage area. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So those were the ciders. You want to try uh, working through the meats? I do. Okay. For those of you at home, wish you could taste these. Yeah. Sucks to be you guys. <laughs> so again, a sizer is a mead. Yeah, you want to try some? Sizer is a mead that you used apple juice to reconstitute the honey. And in this okay. case, um, I used African wildflower honey, so Zambian okay. wildflower, which is a um, deep, dark, earthy, um, almost musty kind of okay. big, uh, big honey. So just putting it in, you know, with the cider, it still carries some of that flavor. I've done, you know, different v- versions of this as just a straight mead, and it's delicious. As a sizer, I think it's 
uh, really complex. Yeah, I can I can smell it. So this one's coming in around ten percent. This is semi sweet. But you get that initial you, you definitely taste the apples. There's a little bit of acidity that's coming from the honey. Mm -hmm. And then there's that finish where it just kind of fades away and you get that, you know, dark earthy kind of impression yeah, yeah. from the honey. And I think these two, you know, play pretty well together. Incisors can be, you know, any combination of just a straight apple and honey mix. You can put cinnamon, you can put, uh, you know, Christmas spices. You can do, you know, a popular version is called an apple butter sizer. Um, they can be sweet, they can be dry. It, it's all up to just what you want to make. Yeah, and you say this semi-sweet. Semi-sweet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not, it's not cloying at all. It's very good. So with... With meads, um, anything 1010 or 1012 or lower is considered dry. Okay. 1010 um, 10 to roughly 1025 is semi-sweet, and anything that finishes 1025 or up is considered sweet. Okay. Um, you can get into a dessert category, which is, you know, 1040 and above, and those are, you know, pretty chewy, but they're good. Yeah. Um, I tend to stay away from dry. I just don't find them to be particularly um, to my palate. Uh, I like sweet, but semi-sweet to me kind of covers the most ground. Right. You could yeah. have something 10, 10, 15 to 10, 20, and it's just a, no pun intended, but sweet spot, you know, for that to finish <laughs> off. Shot there. <laughs> All right. So the next one. Yeah, that's good. This is mesquite. So mesquite blossom honey from Mexico. This one's a 2018. And I actually made this one during a power outage that we had during Hurricane Florence. Okay. So I just always call this Hurricane Florence mead. Um, so mesquite is a nutty, um, interesting flavor that a lot of folks have never had before. Mm -hmm. it, you know, when you think mesquite, you think smoky, but this is again from the blossom. So this is what the what does the yeah. flower taste like? Uh, lightly oaked. Um, this one finished right at the border of semi-sweet to sweet. But again, this came right out of the keg. I did not doctor this with uh, acid or tannin at all. But in the nose, you can definitely get some of the alcohol sweetness. You're getting some of the residual honey sweetness. Yeah, I can smell that honey. And then there's that little nutty, uh, almost almond-like uh, character that, that'll come across in the, in the taste as well. Oh, yeah. It tastes like a blossom. <laughs> sure. It's beautiful. Um, where do you find these honeys? So you can go to your local farm stand, mm -hmm. and you can get wildflower honey from pretty much anywhere. And wildflowers defined as we don't know where the bees went, <laughs> but they went lots of different places. To get a varietal. Those hun you know, those bees needed to hang out in an orchard that was specific to that. So was it clover? Was it tupelo? Was it meadow foam? Was it, um, you know, mesquite? Uh, you know, anything, there's probably 50 different types of honey. I started buying it in bulk. So I'm buying 60-pound pails from Dutch Gold, which is in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And, that, you know, a 60-pound pail will, will let you have a lot of fun. You can yeah. make probably, 
four to six, you know, kegs, depending on how oh, much wow. alcohol yeah. you want to put into yeah. that. And then you can start blending. Um, to buy, you know, at the local farm stand, you're probably going to spend seven, eight bucks, you know, for a pound of honey. Ooh. And if yeah. you're going to make a five-gallon batch, you know, you're looking at, you know, up to 15 pounds of honey. Yeah. Um, back, you know, before COVID, you could buy bulk and spend in the, you know, $2 to $2.50 range per pound. Okay. So, you know, definitely created a, a cost savings there. I was making batches of mead for about the same cost as a, a batch of beer. Yeah. Um, now, you, since COVID, you know, things aren't as available as they were because nothing crossed the border for a while. So you, you right. haven't sniffed uh, mesquite honey, you know, in the States in, in two years. Yeah. Uh, this, is, this is probably a dumb question. Do you treat your water at all? So I have um, well water where I'm from. Mm-hmm. And chemically, it's spot on for what I want to do. Okay. The ions are where they need to be. Basically, if your water tastes good to you, doesn't have chlorine or chloramines in it, mm-hmm. it's going to make good meat. Yeah. Okay. Great. Simple enough. All right. And then we're going to finish up. This is a 2019 um, pie mint. So this is clover honey, Chardonnay grape juice, fermented together. And a pie mint is any mead that is made with grape juice. So there are all sorts of different ways to describe different styles you know for instance if you make it with rose hips it's a you know hippocras if you make it with something else it has another name like there's probably 30 different yeah subcategories yeah. Of, of the different spiced <laughs> meads um, piments tend to be uh, not exactly wine like because it, you know the honey is going to definitely still be the primary mm-hmm. uh, flavor contributor but you know chardonnay versus a cabernet versus a Sauvignon Blanc, you want to match those with the honeys. So um, orange blossom honey, which mm-hmm. has a natural acidity, with a Sauvignon Blanc grape juice, which has a natural acidity or a Riesling, those go together great. Okay. Um, and you can pair with, you know, a Cabernet and have a nice dry red wine, you know, kind of flavor and impression. Oh, wow. And you can play with everything in between. You can make them dry, you make them sweet. Um, you want a little more? Okay. You ever find a keg and you're like, I forgot I made this in the back. Uh, more often than you'd think. <laughs> yeah. um, I've had a couple ciders. I've had a couple meads and and some sizers where you make it and you taste it and you're like, well, that isn't exactly what I had in mind. Yeah. Either it went too far in one direction or it just didn't fit your, your mental picture of what that was going to be like. And I've learned to just put it aside, put it yeah. in the corner, ignore it for the next two to three years so and come back to it. So you've got a lot of kegs. Um, yeah. Yeah. I've got, I think his last counting, um, 110 kegs. Oh my God. And I've got about These are cornies. Yeah. Yeah. And I got about 80 of them filled with liquid. Oh my God. So again, I, I, bulk I aging have, is your friend. I have like 10 of them and I thought I had a lot. <laughs> oh, there, hey. there it is. But again, you can, you get the, the sweetness from the honey, but you can definitely tell the, the tartness and the character that comes from the grape. Oh, yeah. Certainly on the finish. That is really nice. Wow. That's amazing. Cheers. Cheers, man. I really appreciate you bringing all these. Sure. This really opened my eyes to ciders and meads. Well, you said last night, hey, you know, why don't you bring some? So, you know, before dinner, I ran That's out. That's really the, the whole reason for this podcast is to have people bring us absolutely. stuff to drink. <laughs> and you know what? It, it doesn't take much to twist my arm to say, share your stuff and talk about it. 
Yeah. Just ask my wife. I never shut up about, <laughs> <laughs> about my hobby or what I've made lately. So I also heard that you make your own gin. Is uh, this true? Allegedly. Allegedly? Allegedly. There, there may mean, be. Yeah, okay. It may have happened. Okay. <laughs> Bourbons? Um, not done bourbons yet. Um, you know, the, the lesser complex things are the, the fun ones to kind of get started with. Okay. But, um, if you like gin, you know, it's just based on the recipe of how many herbs and different botanicals you want to put into it. Right. And do you want something that tastes like Bombay Sapphire? Do you want something that tastes like Hendrix? You know, the, the recipes are kind of out there. Yeah. It's just a matter of figuring out how much do you want in each? I tend to like uh, a more citrus forward, a little less reliant on just, you know, a juniper bomb. Right. So, you know, orange peels, lemon peels, grapefruit peels, um, you know, tangerines, whatever you want to put into it, you can do that. And then there's, you know, seven or eight other things that kind of find themselves in every gin. My wife is allergic to uh, juniper a little bit, I think, like Christmas trees give her fits. And uh, so we're looking, yeah, we're looking for some, a gin, because we like gin, but you know, can't drink a lot of it, start sneezing, start. Yeah, yeah that's not good. Yeah, it's not good. So you don't want to have an EpiPen and, with your uh, evening cocktail. Yeah, and who wants a who wants a vodka martini anyway? Really? Yeah. No. no, it's for <laughs> that's for cleaning surfaces. <laughs> Liquor should either be brown or uh, or have uh, juniper in it. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's get into the boil, Sean. It's time for the boil. So, uh, homebrew happenings. Uh, you have anything on your uh, drawing board that you're brewing up coming up? Um, so the nationals are going on right now. Yes. So we submitted all of our entries back in uh, mid March. The first round judging for uh, Indianapolis was three weeks ago. We won't know how we did until the first weekend in May, and then the second round is in June. Uh, right. This year it's going to be in uh, San Diego. Yeah. Are so you I, going? I'm not. I went last year, judged yeah. last year in Pittsburgh. Yeah, Obviously, that was you, a good time. You were there as well. Yeah. Um, so much closer. This year, it just didn't work out on the schedule. Yeah, but it's a wish expensive I could. flight. <laughs> yeah, and I just I didn't have the time to give up. I had some other things going on this year. So yeah. uh, I'll miss it, but I'll be back next year. Yeah, um, I have, uh, I brought this this Mexican lager. I don't know if we want to try that. Uh, sure. But my wife is a big fan of the tahine spice, which I just oh, yeah. became aware of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we put um, it on popcorn. Yeah. Oh, that's that's a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's why I like having smart people on. They think of these things, you know. Uh, but I was going to do, I'm, I, I want to put that in a beer. Um, I was thinking of American wheat. But, you know, I'm thinking maybe with the acidity of that spice might do a gosa or something. Sure. Uh, put that spice in there. I don't know. Just something I'm kicking around. And it'd probably play well with the lime, too. So. Yeah. It, it's, uh, I don't know. It seems like everybody on the planet knows what it is except me, but it's kind of uh, chili pepper, uh, lime flavored, mm-hmm. acidic, citric acid kind of spice, whatever. Yeah, let me know when you make that. I want to try some. Yeah, I'm going to make that. Uh, we talked about the big brew day, uh, May 6th. The snobs are, uh, is that terrestrial this year? Making yeah. the wort? They've been very supportive of the club the last several years. Yeah. Um, they make the wort, you show up, you fill your carboy, mm-hmm. take it home. Uh, they typically do. It's a just a you know general pale ale, lightly hopped uh, type wort, and then you get creative with you it from there. Finish it however you want, yep. and it's great because the wort making process is the 
It's the time-consuming process of the brew day, uh, and you don't have to clean out the mash tun. We're always talking about, yep. you know, scrubbing out the mash tun. So, uh, yeah, probably going to – I mean, all you have to do is get a f- sanitized vessel. Oh, excuse me. Yeah. Mm. And, and uh, they'll fill it with wort. And then we have a meeting typically a month and a half or so later with snobs that everybody brings, you know, what they what made, they made yeah. and you compare. And it's amazing that you can get – 16 different styles of beer out of what was, you know, a relatively base pedestrian, you know, initial wort. Yeah. Guys take it home and they reboil it or they'll add extra fermentables. They'll they'll do a souring. They'll do a fruit. They'll do, you know, all sorts of fun stuff that us homebrewers tend to do. And it's fun just to test them and see which one you like best. Yeah, for sure. Uh, in uh, pro brew happenings around the area, uh, Millersburg Brewing is celebrating their 10th anniversary um, on Saturday, May 6th, they're going to have some sp- food specials and uh, a couple special uh, beer releases. Uh, so, you know, get down to Millersburg. Um, that brewery is, I'm a consultant pharmacist, so I go out to these nursing homes, and I have one down in Walnut Creek. So Millersburg is just down the street. So excellent. it's it's fun to go out there and, you know, see what they're brewing it. You know, Stopped in there. there last year. Uh, my wife and I went to Columbus, celebrated our anniversary. We stayed at BrewDog at the hotel. Yeah. So we hit breweries on the way down to Columbus and then hit breweries on the way home. Of course. And one of the two stops, the first one was Millersburg. Yeah. Um, great beer. Took a bunch home. Uh, really a cool little spot. If you haven't been there, I highly recommend it. And then we hit uh, Paradigm Shift in oh, Massillon. Yeah. You know, Mike, uh, Mike's a great home brewer who's mm-hmm. gone uh, pro and just absolutely killed it. So Mike Malinowski, fantastic stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, I wanted to touch on ABC since Matthias isn't here, uh, but they uh, got number two in the Northeast Ohio Craft Brewers News uh, for the best food in-house option. Um, So that's pretty cool. Um, Uniontown in Ashland was number one. I have never been there, but yeah, so they apparently have good food too. All right. they also had the poll for outdoor patios, and ABC was number four in that, which is pretty impressive. Uh, number one, Sandy Springs in Minerva, Birdfish in Columbiana. Uh, number two, number three, Missing Mountain. That's pretty cool. Cuyahoga Falls. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Ignite was number five, right behind ABC. Uh, I mean, come on, ABC's got a, a creek running through the back going right next to the patio. That's Pretty yeah, beat. yeah, that's nice. Uh, they've lost a couple feet through erosion, <laughs> uh, so yeah, the river or the creek is even closer. So it's be- even better. Yeah, no. <laughs> have a little water with your beer. Yeah. Um, so uh, locally, we wanted to talk about what's happening uh, in uh, beer events. The Medina Beer Fest, uh, Saturday, um, April twenty third. We talked about this last uh, big show. They got twenty five breweries. There's Three tiers of entry. Um, they have food trucks, uh, so a bunch of food, and you get a free donut. I mean, come on. A donut. I mean, I'm in. Free donut, I'm in. So, uh, Snobs Night Out is, how many times can I mention this? Uh, April 19th, uh, which is next Wednesday. Do it as many times as you want. Yeah, there. <laughs> come down and get a pint of my size on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to pimp that as many times as I can. Uh, beer releases, uh, Fatheads, the Klein and Crispy German Pills style ale is coming out. 
and that is even more recent than the Green Grunge, which is very good, by the way. I'll take another little. Yeah, let's say pass that can over here. Mm. Thank you. Uh, at the Fatheads North Olmstead, um, they have a beer called Constant Tardiness Boysenberry so- Sour Ale, and it's on tap only in the saloon. That's not going to be in cans or anywhere else. Um, Saucy Brew Works, uh, Don't Stop With It, Tangerine White Ale. I always like saucy beers. They're good. Yep. Uh, they're going to have that on tap at the brew at the brewery, and they're going to have 12-ounce uh, cans, six-packs. Noble Beast did a collaboration with Wolf R- Wolf's Ridge in Columbus, and that is a Mexican, uh, Mexican dark lager. Um, Adjunct with a Waxacan, O-A-X-A-C-A-N, corn. It's a green corn. So that's pretty cool, like an adjunct lager. That'd be pretty good. Put some tahini spice on that. Uh, Noble Beast, um, just said that. Schnitz Ale Brewery in Akron, Danks for the Mammaries. Get it? Mammaries. It was a uh, Pink Boots. Excellent. Um, They're donating some of those proceeds to the Pink Boots Society. Uh, uh, Medina Brewing, um, since Matthias isn't here, uh, they have, uh, in their Survivor Series, they have the Idaho 7 and Cascade uh, IPA. It's a cold IPA. Um, So I'm going to try to see if we can get Matthias to bring some in for next week's or the following week's big episode. Um, Collision Bend, I don't know if I mentioned this, uh, but... I did a collaboration with them. We have the Great and Grind size on, I, I and it's on. You didn't know that? No, I did not know. Okay, that. well, awesome. What uh, they are? So, how did you get to do to do that? What's the story? That was uh, oh, I'm glad you asked. Yes, uh, the Lorraine uh, Waterfront Brewfest has a collab or a contest every. Uh, it's in August every year, and I just entered it. Need another beer? <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, so uh, yeah, and uh, for winning that, you get to brew at Collision Bend. So awesome! I brewed a beer with Collision Bend, in case you didn't know. So, while I've got the microphone uh, facing your direction, does your audience know that you are a Sam Adams long shot winner? I don't know. No, they do. <laughs> Excellent, because that's a story I love to hear all the time. Uh, yeah. So, if you're telling stories, go ahead. Oh, we're running short on time. I gotta, I gotta burn through some events here. So uh, we also like to here at uh, Blabber Malt Show. We like to talk about some music events going on. Um, uh, Billy Morris, who is our patriarch here at uh, Audio Bay Studios, he's going to be down at um, Game On in Avon Lake. Uh, that is uh, April twenty second. It's a Saturday. That's in, up in Avon Lake, Moore Road, in uh, Walker. Um, so they're going to be playing a show. And also, Billy organized the Janie Lane Tribute Show, which is down at Temple Live. That is May 20th and 21st. I think it's the same show, but they pay tribute to the late, great Warrant singer, Janie Lane. Uh, It's a good show. Um, So, you know, if you like 80s rock, Mm -hmm. go check that out. Uh, There's a couple metal shows coming up. The Black Dahlia Murder, Wednesday. uh, That's tomorrow, April 12th. At the Foundry. I'm not in love with the Foundry as a venue, but Black Dahlia Murder, yeah, like a progressive metal, uh, technical metal, very good band. So get down, check them out. Uh, August Burns Red, 
May 2nd at the House of Blues. This is my bag, baby. Yeah, good band. Uh, Killswitch Engage is this coming Saturday, which wife's giving me the kibosh on that. Killswitch Engage is probably one of my favorite bands, but we're going to be up in Marblehead, so sorry. Not going to work. Not going to work. Uh, the Chaos and Carnage Tour, which is Dying Fetus and Suicide Silence, April 19th at the Agora. Uh, yeah, metalcore, hardcore metalcore. Um, Spirit Box, May 6th, uh, down at the Agora. Love Spirit Box. Um, probably not going to check them out. but uh, um, Then we got to talk about the greatest band of all time. You know who the greatest band of all time is, don't you? Up the Irons, baby. Hell yeah, Iron Maiden. So I just learned this like at NHC that you were like a yeah. huge Iron Maiden fan. When when did you get turned on to Iron Maiden? Uh, Nineteen eighty-two. So that had to be uh, Number of the Beast. Yeah, Number of the Beast came out. Uh, the first two albums were great, and then. Basically, from Number of the Beast forward, I was buying their albums as they came out. Yeah. First tour I saw them, I wasn't even old enough to drive. It was uh, Power Slave. Yeah, yeah. At the old Coliseum. Uh, saw them on Somewhere in Time. Saw them on, you know, the next two tours. And, you know, just grew up with that band. Yeah. And, you know, Bruce left early 90s, didn't come back until 2001-ish. I kind of fell out during that time. That's when grunge was a little more popular, we were growing up, you know, had other interests at the time. And then recently, within the last two, three years, have completely come back. And, you know, that's pretty much who I listen to most of the time. Yeah. You know, their new stuff, their old stuff, uh, Bruce's solo stuff. Like, that's just, if I want to listen to music, that's what I put on. And it yeah. kind of takes me back to, you know, being that age and when music was the biggest thing of, you know, your day. When, when were you going to go out and buy the next LP? Yeah. Know, wait in line at the you know, record den or secondhand LP, you know, whatever your, your music store of choice was, um, you know, physically taking that home and putting it on the turntable and, and hearing the music was just a rite of passage when we were kids. Yeah, these kids don't understand. You couldn't look up a band on YouTube or no. Spotify, whatever. You like, you talk to your friends, they give you a mixtape, a physical thing, you put in a physical mm -hmm. thing and played it. Uh, yeah, it was great. I, I remember um, my grandmother, it was for... A birthday or a Christmas got me two records, and she just went to the record store and said, what are kids into? One was the Who Quadrophenia. The other one was Kiss Double Platinum. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, the Who is pretty good, but Kiss, I am yeah. into this. Double Platinum was the first album I ever owned as a child. Oh, yeah. Seven years old. Yeah. My parents bought me Double Platinum. <laughs> That's so, great. Yeah. God Grew up bless with Kiss. Them. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> So then, you know, you just evolve from there and, you know, you get your hard-earned um, allowance money. You go down to the music land in the mall and I see Number of the Beast, that artwork, iconic artwork. And you're like, what's this all about? Oh, and it was over. I was like, this is for me. Yep. Yeah, it Amen. was over. So I saw, I looked this up. There, I looked the show up. I saw Iron Maiden for the first time. Oh, where is it? This is great radio. Uh, Tuesday, May 18th, 1982 at the Toledo Sports Arena. Oh, wow. Yeah. That was great. Great times. Anyway, Iron Maiden, <laughs> best band of all time. Listen to him on the way here. <laughs> I'm going to listen to him on the way home. Yeah, that's right. All right, hit the, la hit the grain up. 
It's time to grain, grain out. Grain out. Grain, grain out. out. Yeah. So uh, it's going to be a great weather this weekend. So we're probably going to be up at Marblehead, uh, probably get up to Twin Oast. Uh, they're releasing their Rutherford B. Haze, Hazy IPA, which is a good beer. But they have another one, a Session Hazy, the Galvanator. Galavanter, I'm sorry. Uh, so I'm interested to check that one out. Um, so get out and uh, support your local brewery. Get out on the patio and have some beers. Um, I'm going to try to get Matthias to bring us some of that cold IPA for the next show. Our guest is to be determined. We have a couple people we're talking to to get on for the next show. Um, email your questions to blabbermalt at gmail.com. Uh, hit us up on Facebook and YouTube at The Blabbermalt Show and at Blabbermalt at Instagram and uh, Twitter. And uh, having said that, we're going to stay malty, Cleveland. <laughs>